Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 533. Um, Nerdist.com and Nerdist News specifically is doing a crap ton of coverage of E3, which is happening all this week. Um, We're doing a a tournament with, uh, we're doing an Evolve tournament. Um, which is evolved as a phenomenal game that I uh, got the shit kicked out of me in, uh, and you can go online and see that. Uh, but all of our coverage this week uh, with Jessica and Malik Forte and uh, and Dan Casey and Brian Walton, if you go to Nerdist.com and then there's a little E3 tab at the top, uh, click on that and just get our continuing coverage of, of E3. <laughs> as <clears throat> I continue to chase the dream of filling the hole that G4 left. Uh, so thank you for supporting that. And also, I'd like to thank for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast, The Signal, in theaters June 13th. I don't know why I have to say it that way. It just feels um, because it's essentially uh, like a sci-fi mystery thriller sort of thing. I, I feel like I have to do it in that voice. Um, but uh, the signal is essentially a group of college students are on a road trip. They're mysteriously lured into the middle of a desert uh, by a hacker, and then everything goes dark. Then I guess uh, shit gets crazy would be a good way to explain that. Lawrence Fishburne's in the movie. Uh, Brendan Thwaites, uh, Olivia Cook is in Bates Motel, and then uh, Sarah Clark. Um, and uh, that opens Friday, June 13th. So, The Signal in theaters. Go see it. Thanks for their sponsorship. And this episode is uh, Mitch Hurwitz, who we, I mean, Mitch created Arrested Development. And Mitch and Jim Vallely, uh individually, they're mind-numbingly hilarious. Uh, but if we can ever get the two of those guys together, um, it is... They are essentially uh, the uh, wonder twins of comedy. But uh, Mitch was down in Nashville. We went down for the Wild West Comedy Festival to do at midnight uh, shows. And he was doing a Q&A at the Belcourt Theater. And so they asked me if I wanted to moderate it. And I said, shit, yeah, can I record it? And they said, shit, yeah. And then pretty soon everyone said, shit, yeah. Uh, and then we were like, why are we swearing so loudly in public? And I'm like, oh, because we're us. So uh, we did this at the Belcourt Theater. And uh, Mitch is... Just unbelievable. I mean, like, if you want to understand comedy and comedy writing and, you know, the guy has been working in... He worked on the Golden Girls. Gene and Jim worked on the Golden Girls, um, which is another show that I love. So he is is a master class in comedy and television writing and... Um, so, I, oh, and the, the sounds a little echoey. There's just nothing we could do about it. We were this was being recorded in a theater that doesn't normally record. I mean, they just basically it's a movie theater where they put some chairs, and uh, so the PA system, you know, wasn't 
wasn't super kind in terms of, uh, of audio recording, but uh, but we did the best we could. So I hope that is uh, I hope that is uh, that is satisfactory. Uh, several hundred people showed up, and then uh, we did a little Q and A after the after the moderated Q and A. So here you go, uh, the Nerdist podcast with uh, Arrested Development's Mitch Hurwitz. Now entering Nerdist.com. I wasn't sure if, um, if I, there were... If there I have were... a feeling that applause is mostly for those little teeny songs to stop, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Wait, we could hear that downstairs. And Do you know what's weird? Is, it, it's weird to come watch a movie that's also someone's living room, where <laughs> they're just living their life and you're I trying to watch a movie. the original family that lived here... <laughs> Um, finally, they just couldn't take the light in their eyes. That's <laughs> so what I heard. And a lot of down at front, like right here in front of right. the weird French movie that Why they were coming to see. Move um, here. Welcome, you guys, to the Belcourt Theater. Uh, Mitchell Hurwitz is here. We're going to talk some Arrest Development and some Chris. Chris Hardwick is here. I'm also That's here. The That's fine. the story. No, it's not. Listen. We're gonna. I'm gonna. We're gonna yap for a bit, and then I'm gonna give you the audience. I'm going to empower you with questions. So I want to make sure that we leave time for that. So and then you, we're gonna do a, just a brief period where you ask each other questions. That's right. Get to know so each other. We kind of get a break. Yeah. So Mitch and I are gonna be coming up with the but questions that we're gonna other. ask you guys. <laughs> that's a like great why idea. hats on your visor? Like what your, your uh, glasses? What are, what are they protecting there? That's no. Think about your answer, and then we'll get to it after the show. We're famous for taking on the audience. <laughs> We're not afraid to talk to the guy with the crossed arms and defensive body posture in the front row. Twice our size. <laughs> you, you seem nice. Um, Mitch, uh, it's, and this ultimately this will be a podcast. We're going to put this on the Nerdist podcast, uh, if you guys are familiar with that. If are not, going I to, take it back. Is this capturing it? This We're, is capturing it to a degree. I think it's also being captured in the back okay. uh, up there, but this is just a backup. So I don't have to remember this and then reenact it yeah, in the studio. You're going to remember all of it. I'm going to have someone transcribe it, and then we're going to go through and cast it. And then you're not going to have to play yourself. Because I'm doing one that I already did in a podcast already. So Am I, is what I'm saying right now be, part of that? Yes. That's really sure. weird. Um, I think uh, yeah. it's safe to say that uh, we will get to the Arrested Development talk, because in my estimation... Because nobody wants to hear about that. Okay, all right. Let's talk They're about... here to hear about my family. <laughs> How guys, is your wife? Oh, God, you guys. Mary Jo, it's... Okay, great Mary Jo story. <laughs> No, I don't have a great Mary Jo story. Uh, well... They're all sad. <laughs> when did you first decide, uh, I want to be a comedy writer, I want to go into comedy, you know, what was the, when was that? Um, well, we, you and I were talking backstage, uh, we have a similar thing, um, except you're probably a decade older than me, I'm trying I'm to like, guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a lot older. Um, and I, you know, grew up just loving comedy albums and memorizing it, and, and I heard that you did Steve Martin impressions, which I, we're going to get to. Yeah, I'm going to do all of them. I'd just love to see that first I'm going to do all of I'm going to do okay. all of Wild and Crazy Guy, <laughs> then we'll go to Let's Get Small, and then kind of drift into Comedy's Not Pretty. I was to do those two as a, as a child. My father would make me... It was just humiliating 
to do Steve Martin. <laughs> my mom used to make me do yeah. that too. Uh, yeah, it's really. They awful. got a weird thrill. You should out of do it. it for my dad. That'd be weird. He really loves it. Do you think your dad would hook up with my mom? <laughs> I. Yeah, yeah I, think that's, I think he'd be up for anything, really. Uh, yeah, I loved that stuff. I remember I went to the Steve Martin concert in Anaheim, and I took notes. I, this was like in '76. I brought my little pad and I wrote down "Magic Dime Trick." Do you remember that? What was the magic? Because dime? he had this giant. You know, it was a huge auditorium of people. He was selling out these arenas, and so he would say, "I've got a trick just for you guys: the Magic Dime Trick." <laughs> Gone. That was the joke. Because <laughs> it was there were like fifteen thousand yeah. people there. Exactly. I didn't see it though because I was writing down magic dime trick. That's real good. Gone. What were, what were you going to do with the magic dime trick notes? I I was going to share them with my brother because he couldn't go. Oh yeah. That's yeah. sweet. Yeah. So when? It'd be really sweet if he was dying. Well, <laughs> I'm so glad he's still alive. But how dare he live to not make that a weirder story? Can't try to make that a better story. <laughs> So when uh, at what so you start you you obviously were obsessed with comedy but then did you ever want to go into stand up and or did you just think well writing is really more my thing I think you know my first of all my brother's struggle to stay alive really taught me the value of Now we've following already established your that your brother is fine yeah <laughs> totally fine he's not he's, he's a surgeon but like all of us struggle to stay alive <laughs> uh I, you know, I just always loved it. I kind of loved that um, I was, you know, self-conscious, and I was kind of George Michael. I remember when I, when I pitched the George Michael character <laughs> at Fox, and I said, he's self-conscious, which I thought would be so funny. <laughs> and they said, that doesn't sound like a Fox kid. <laughs> and I think they were right, but... No, but, <laughs> but, I mean, just sort of... Can he be self-conscious, but also a little Bart Simpson? Yeah, <laughs> can, he, can he tell people to eat his shorts and don't have a cow and stuff? Yeah. No, I don't... Self-consciously? Yeah, self-conscious. Yeah, I could probably do that. I think, uh, you know, in contrast to everything else, to, sitcoms are very hard to make. Like, the television process is, inc- is incredibly hard, and most of them get completely ruined. So, just jumping ahead, and then we'll, we'll jump back and forth a lot. Uh, and then sideways, like in Lost. Yeah, right. And, um, and then it turns out we're all dead. Um, but Spoiler. But did you... Well, let's uh, start with the end. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for it's doing this. Good to this. see you. Thank you for that being here, so Mitch. Great. You guys were great. Oh, you guys. This, guy's, this guy's story right here with the glasses and the visor. I mean, not a dry eye in the house. Um, <laughs> but it, remember when we thought he was just a punchline? <laughs> I mean, he was so much more than that. So much more. Um, but... How do you how do you make a show like Arrested and maintain the integrity of the comedy without the network getting in the way for lack well, of a better? You know, it's up to anybody to decide if we maintained. You know, I mean, it, at the time there wasn't tweeting, so it wasn't like everything was up for review. And I, I do think, you know, we kind of had the benefit of dying young. Like nobody goes back and says. Uh, you know who wasn't a very good actor? James Dean. <laughs> yeah, I just watched it again. A little wooden. A little wooden. Uh, one note. Uh, so we did Die Young, and that, that kind of burnished our, our reputation in a way. But I will say, for whatever reason, well, I know the reason. The reason was I, I was coming from writing for somebody else. Um, and I won't say who that is because she's very popular now and powerful and has a daytime lesbian-based talk show. <laughs> I mean, that could be anybody. It could be anybody. Yeah, that could be anyone. It's like Dinah Shore. You know what? I'm just going to tell you her first name. Okay. Okay, it was Ellen. 
Um, no, I had, um, <laughs> it's not the one you're thinking of. Totally different one. Yep. It's Ellen Cleghorn. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh, is that the one you were thinking of? I, this is what I was thinking of. Was it not Ellen Cleghorn? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd done the Cleghorn show, and... Um, <laughs> And and she and actually loved it, you know. I mean, she's hilarious and talented and everything. But it's but it was writing for somebody else and writing for a star, and um, you know, it's how somebody is going to feel about how miserable it is to write your show someday. Of course, good, right? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> oh, and, I hope so. And so I kind of wanted to do a thing that was kind of more authorial, or you know, I could kind of create that world myself. And um, so it became. In one sense, nobody knew what to make of it, so they didn't know how to note it. But in another sense, um, once it was on the air, they just constantly tried to turn it into something else. And it became clear to me that I should fight for, you know... I mean, I was accused of being... of The fight style I was accused of employing was rope-a-dope, <laughs> which was not intentional. But, I mean, I would kind of take the notes. I would listen to the notes. I would say, oh, that's interesting, which they really got sick of hearing. Don't say that's interesting, Mitch. We want you to do this. Well, that's unique. <laughs> and, but I, and then I would try to incorporate the notes, but for the most part, it was clear to me that the show was one thing, and, um, and everything I was doing with it really was to make it successful, which it wasn't at the time. But I think the, the, uh, the assumption was that I was being an artist or I was being difficult or I was just trying to do something arcane. And I wasn't. I was just trying to pack it full of jokes. And the, and the, the decision, you know, was, all right, you've got to make this show 20% simpler. And the third season, um, they wanted me to sign a contract that said I would make it 30% or 20% simpler. For reals? Yeah. Because we all know it's just an equation, this stuff. <laughs> Comedy's math. Yeah. That's all it is. 20, so go to where you normally go and then just yeah. shave 20% off It's hard off to that. imagine a field where 20%... Le- like, you couldn't say to like a guy building a house, can you just do it like 20% less? Just less. <laughs> However you want to take that note. Yeah, so... And I, I did say no to that. Well, if, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, because the show... I mean, I don't... It, it, the yeah, first, you haven't seen it. Arrest Development Yes The band from the 90s Okay that's what I was afraid of Yeah Yeah. No 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 no, It was not that Tennessee Tennessee Oh it's nice to meet you You were in a great band Um but when I, when I first saw the show, I couldn't even compare it to anything else. Like, it didn't... To me, it didn't register as, oh, this is like... I mean, it was... The story structure was unlike anything else that I had ever seen before. Um, you know, it's funny. It, it sort of seemed that way. I think a lot of it was tone. Um, but, you know, I'd started on The Golden Girls, and... Oh, thank you. I want to tell you something. That's usually where that... That's usually where that... <laughs> you just jumped it a little yeah, bit. I got it. No, but I, but I think... I was a, like a low-level writer on that. But I, but I learned so much about structure on that show. And when people said, oh, God, there's no rules to this show and anything can happen, and I always thought, no, it's the Golden Girls. They, you know, every scene kind of ends with, like, another twist. The act break is the oh, shit moment, which is the standard in sitcoms. I think every act break I did on Arrested was oh, shit. It was almost like the only way I knew how to tell a story. Well, I think the gold... I love the Golden Girls, like, Would way. you like to see me tell a story? Yeah. Would you tell one? Okay, so Goldilocks... Uh, was it Goldilocks with the three bears? I think so. Yeah, so she finds this house, and then, oh, shit, here come the bears. Act break. Act break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so That's then... That's my style. So then bring us forward, and we come back into act two. 
you sit around and you have cheesecake and you talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe tell stories about one time when a bear almost attacked you. No, I, actually, every show kind of, to me, was built around uh, kind of a, a big, um, what we used to call a block comedy scene. Uh, so every, you know, there would always be something, you know, like, uh, I can't even think of them, but, you know, somehow like, okay, then the crane picks up Job dressed as a banana and mom comes through and, you know, drives in slow motion through the farmer's market, basically, which is what that joke was. And, um, and it was always about just trying to get to this moment of crisis. Uh, and I, actually, even Ron Howard said to me once, you know, I don't want to embarrass you, but... Uh, just- <laughs> Because I, I think it's a good thing, but um, you do, you, you tend to, the shows kind of all come together at one point. I was like, yeah, happy days, man. <laughs> Welcome bowlers, reunion, you know, like the every, every Could you happy, make happy days. days jokes around him? Uh, yeah. Oh, good. It took a while. <laughs> what really took a while was even mentioning Fonzie to Henry Winkler. Oh. Yeah. Was he okay with it? Yeah, I I had written this joke where where he was going to be as Henry as uh, Barry Zuckercorn, he was going to look in the mirror and at the end of a scene and go to comb his hair and go hey, right? Which was the famous <laughs> of course. Moment. Although John Levenstein, who was a writer on the show, had a better take on it, which was that he would look in the mirror and go, ah. <laughs> it's like the same move, you know. Um, but I thought that was so good, but. Uh, we were all scared to put it in the script, and we shot it in a bathroom, and like, so I ran down to get on the set with him and, and just had to make it look like I thought of it at the last minute, like, waited until we were about to like, pack up the cameras and then say, hey, I just thought of something funny. Nah, you don't want to do this. No, that's weird, because I saw that you wrote it down yeah. d- days ago. Oh, was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, did you just come yeah. up with that now? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm reliving. Oh, okay. I'm reliving it. <laughs> um, and, and he kind of gave me a look... And then he said, okay. And I did not have the heart to then pitch him the other one. What would be really great is if you're not happy with how, you're, how you turned out. <laughs> and she just said, oh, fuck it. What's the point? He seemed pretty cool about stuff, oh, though. He so jumped great. over the shark. Like, oh, he's... my God. Absolutely. Yes, he jumped over a shark. He jumped over the shark. <laughs> yes. I want to add to saying, on the, you know, I'm going to Burger King because we jumped the shark by advertising <laughs> Burger King. That was really the other joke there. I'm going to Burger King. Jumps over shirt. Well, that's but that's that's a perfect example of the type of joke layering that happened on the show. Is that it serves the story, but it also serves the meta story that you guys, as the creators, I, are telling at the same time. Yeah, there was a. There, I definitely was aware when I was doing it, and even so, this last time, that it was very hard to do. But I, for some reason, I got it into my head like this is the only time I'm ever going to write this scene of these guys on the dock. I, I don't know, maybe it's like a fatalism. Like, I always knew it was going to be canceled. So I, I just felt like I just wanted to give it everything. And a lot of it was saying, like, let's give it another minute. You know, a lot, that's all it is sometimes, is just deciding, like, let's give it a minute. Did, I want to talk a little bit about Golden Girls because I genuinely do love that show. And, I, and, I, and that show... It would be so disingenuous of me to say, thank you. Because <laughs> I just worked on it. I was lucky to get to start there. But what was the, what was that, what was the room like and what was, what was the set like? And... Um, the story that's... Uh, well, the room was... There was a, I was in the second kind of group of people that came in. And there was a, a showrunner who would just, would just say, better. Better. So we'd go through the script, page six... There's a joke there about Elvis or something. Better. And we'd all kind of sit up and pitch. And then he changed that to B. I got a B on page six. Just a very dour guy. Oh. And then 
I swear to God, he would start saying, buh. <laughs> he just, just got lazy. It got so lazy. And we're, you know, turning ourselves inside out. To, But it was kind of like that classic thing of there were older people on the show that were getting, you know, millions of dollars. And then there was a bunch of younger people who were just pitching their hearts out. And we have a mutual friend in Jim Vallely. That's yes. where I met Jim Vallely, who's a genius comedy guy. And he would just, he would stand and pitch, which is really ballsy. I mean, you just don't stand. First time I was in a room with him, I've told this story before, so forgive me. And it never, I can't make it funny like he did. But they were pitching, it was his first day in the room, and they were pitching uh, Blanche's opening birthday presents. And Rose had to give her one. And Jimmy, just so competitive and so wanting to keep this job, stood up and said, It's a blouse! <laughs> and I can't even stay up. I'm so uncomfortable. And, and everybody just looked at him, and then he said, You said you wanted something crotchless. <laughs> and it was like a revelation to me. I know. I know. And I said to him afterwards, I said, Did you know when you stood, did you, had you formed that whole joke? Because it was really instantaneous. No, I no <laughs> He just wanted to plant a flag the he first just, day? Uh, he just threw himself out there, threw himself off the cliff. Is that the most important thing to do in a writer's room? Because a writer's room can be a very toxic environment where people get scared. <laughs> yeah, I was always, you know, it wasn't until I was running shows that I became like a pitching machine. I was very self-conscious and I would always think like, God, it's been four pages and I haven't pitched something. You know, and all this stuff is obviously antithetical to the creative process. It's such a weird thing. You want to be a little scared... But you also want to be relaxed. It's a weird combination of things. I'm sure most of you people are creative here. It's such a creative city. Um, and you struggle with this. Uh, there's a great book on creativity that was written by Jonah Lehrer, who then, true story, got accused of plagiarizing <laughs> the book on creativity. Well, that's the key. And, they, and you can't get it. They pulled it off the, the shelves. But one of the things he talked about was, like, <laughs> a little bit of caffeine is the stimulant, and then relaxation, standing in the shower. That's why you get great ideas in the shower. Oh, I didn't... Oh. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's probably because most of your ideas in the shower have a sexual nature. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I could but masturbate. What an yeah. original idea. <laughs> yeah. Where do I come up with this So stuff? creative. I could have sex with the soap. I don't know where these come from. <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> it's, I'm amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Jonah Lair or whoever. Yeah, really. Well, um, but it is, that it's an interesting, when I run a writer's room, you know, listen, I mean, it's, it's like anything. There's failure involved, and failure is such a part of life, and a lot of guys in comedy didn't come up through sports, which is too bad, <laughs> because sports really teaches you that, mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't have that experience. Really. No, me neither. I was on water polo team for a little while, and I tossed the ball to the goalie, and it scored for them. Ugh. And that was it? Yeah. Did you just paddle to the edge yeah. and get out and just well, never? Yeah, that was it. Just get these out. sad little just, footprints, these just, wet footprints all the way to your car. See me in my wet shirt just <laughs> heading over to the drama department. <laughs> another one. Yeah, Come another, on in. Lost another one. To, <laughs> you can't take it with you. But I think, you know, for people to kind of imagine what a writer's room is like, like imagine, you know, when you're with your group of friends and you're comfortable enough and you, you know, you kind of throw jokes out at the table, but imagine you may not be friends with those people and those people could judge you and also you could get fired if yeah. it doesn't go well. Like it doesn't... And and you they need want to be comfortable. You to fail. <laughs> because, oh, wow. That's right. Oh, look at this. Well, this makes it easier for everyone. Oh, wow. Did the speaker just go out? Um, okay. But are we yelling? Does it say, I hope. 
yeah. No, no, like I, guess, I guess we sound okay, man. Yeah. This guy seems cool at the front. He's got his deal with the shades on his hat. <laughs> um, but no, it's an interesting, you know, and, and I, um, because it was such a critical environment I was raised in with the buzz, you know, buh, buh, came up a lot. And so when I run around my, you know, basically it's the same thing. I might as well be saying B because what I say is, oh, that's funny. <laughs> and they know, you know. Yeah, because you would laugh if you really thought it was funny. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, and I'd write it down. You know, we'd shoot it. There would be all sorts of tells. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but, yeah, it is kind of about... Well, here's the big secret of that, but kind of anything in life. Mm. It's too soon to tell you guys. What? No, no, I don't want to ruin life. No. <laughs> Everyone's thirsty for life knowledge. Don't tweet this. Okay. Okay. No, I was going to say that if you can, if you can dedicate, this is sounds so corny, but if you can dedicate yourself to supporting someone else, all that stuff goes away, right? It, it really is. I mean, I think about self-consciousness because I really come from that, you know? And for me, like when I became friends with the showrunners that I worked for and I saw that they were in distress, you know, and it, it suddenly shifted from I want them to think I'm funny and I want to get a raise to like, I, I have to help here. I have to make this cause to, to help. And I, I think that's kind of... That's why I say it, it kind of exists in everything. Like, relationship problems, for me, you know, when I turn it to, like, well, I want to support this person. This, por- this person is very upset for some reason. You know, the affair. I don't know why. <laughs> Could be anything. I want to support this person and keep that affair going. <laughs> um, no, so anyway, that, that was a big shift for me. It, w- it really was... Ma- and um, I don't know. It, that's been a big key to it. Whenever I get too in my head about how something reflects on me, um, I suck at it. Well, it's, I think that's one of the reasons why when you see people who have improv training... They're, they just really understand how to work as a team. They really understand how to not try to take focus onto themselves. The good ones, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's really, that's helpful in all these other types of situations because it is a, there are very, no matter what you ever think when you're watching someone, there aren't really any one-man shows, except for maybe Louie. I think Louie might be it. Yeah. But other yeah. than that, yeah. like, it's yeah. usually a group, even if you see one person up front, there's a group of people behind them supporting. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is why... Um, well, I mean, it, it is even why I kind of chose television, because I wanted to work with other people. I wanted to bounce off people. And you do find better things when you can work as a team. I think, like, a, the classic team size, apparently, is seven plus or minus two. Because it gets bigger than that, and everyone breaks into separate conversations. And smaller, and it's almost like there's too much of a spotlight. So I would like to bring out five other guys. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Hey, let's okay. bring them out. Come on up. No, I have no idea. No. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, you're talking about high-level improv, by the way. Because I think a lot of improv right now is people just trying to be funny and stand in front of each other and not support each other. Sure. You know, and, and this improv thing is... I'm a fan of it. I'm sort of a fan of any kind of comedy. But, um, but another Jimmy line. You know how long it takes to make three minutes of improv? Three minutes. <laughs> You know, think about it. I mean, think it about feels like, long. what it takes to put together your act yeah. or what it takes to put together a script or, you know, an original song or something. It's just, it, it is this very immediate thing. And 
it's a different kind of comedy. It's really a great personal experience. It doesn't um, film as well sometimes, I think. So how are you able to, with this show, you have these overarching comedy stories, then you have a bunch of layered jokes that are happening in the moment, and then everything, everything that you set up in the episode, no matter how trivial it seems when you're watching it, or even if you notice it, pays off in some way at the end. Where did that idea of tying it up in a bow come from? Um, I actually have an answer for that. Oh, and good. It, it came from um, uh, my, what I perceived as the things I couldn't do. And I remember at the very start of my career, I heard Larry Gelbart, who created the TV show MASH, a brilliant writer, and he said, um, your style is made of what you can't do, which I didn't really understand at the time. I got onto the Golden Girls, and it's all these really, you know, great joke pitchers, guys that can just say things immediately that are funny. And so my, and, or write them, really, right? So, and I hadn't come from that kind of background, so my script started being intertwined, and um, I would kind of work backwards, and I, it, it just became like everything in the, people figured it out, too. It was like, wow, Mitch, in your shows... Every joke that's in the first scene is also in the last scene. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get two jokes out of every joke, you know. Um, and then as, as I went through my career, I did develop the ability to write jokes, you know, of course. But, um, but that style kind of remained. And I'll bet you if you think about yourself as a comedian, like, it's, it's a lot of it is based on what you can't do. It's maybe based on the fact that you know, you don't do Jim Carrey type faces. Right. Right? I mean, I, you're doing that one, but that's just a... We're smoking or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can't remember it anymore. That was pretty... Was that good? It was good. Should I do that? Yes. <laughs> I am rubber face. <laughs> um, but, right? I mean, so you kind of like, maybe your style becomes more observational or... I don't know. I think that's a big part of it. That's interesting. Do you, do, you, do you act out, like, you know, when you're writing, are you sort of acting out the beats to keep everything in your head, or do you really have it all swirling in there? And... It kind of swirls around. I, I also have this thing of, like, I just try to keep everything that actually made me laugh, and, which is a weird thing, and it makes the job a lot harder, because a lot of TV writing or movie writing or any kind of writing is you're just throwing stuff out, and that's always by the way, what you want to say to crowds is like, hey, don't love your jokes, don't love your scripts, be willing to rewrite. Um, again, my style was like, I love this joke. <laughs> and so I would work way backwards. You know, um, Henry Winkler jumping the shark to go to Burger King, it really should have been a seal, because it was a seal that bit off. <laughs> you know, so it was like this whole story where, hey, it's the wrong thing we caught. I'm going to Burger King. Right? Yeah. You know, like just these elaborate ways to keep jokes in a funny way. And, and that kind of layers upon itself. Well, I think, it, I, I think even drama or comedy, as long as someone... I'm fine with someone taking really huge leaps as long as they can figure out how to justify it. Yeah. Which always yeah. seems to be the hardest. Like, you see people make the leap, and then you go, oh, they didn't justify that, or they were just trying to be weird for the sake of weird. Absolutely. It's like, that's the division, in a funny way, between improv and written material. And even, like, animated stuff and, and live action. I did an animated show, and, and Jason Bateman played a character, and he's an actor, you know what I mean? Like, he wants to understand what the scene is. He, he memorizes it instantly when he, has, when he understands it. So he asks a lot of questions. Why wouldn't I just do this? Actually, early on, 
he didn't understand the concept of, like, he kept saying, well, why wouldn't I just tell my mother to go fuck herself? <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know, there's no show. I mean, I know that's a little glib, but it's not a great show. And, and but it, I, I'm telling you, that first year, wouldn't I just tell Job to go fuck himself? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'd have to say, huh, well, uh, you know, I think the thing is you, and actually, you know, we both sort of found that character in answering those, those questions that seemed ridiculous to me at the time. It's like, right, you need it. It's your compulsion. You actually need him to look up to you, so you've got to win him back. And it kind of made what was interesting about Jason in a funny way. But, um, but then when he came and did this animated show, you know, in animated shows, you just go from happy to sad. I mean, it's why Arnett is so good at it, because he's got that really quick turn of, like, I hate myself so much, but I'm also nice-looking. <laughs> you know, like, the, just instant. Like, when you think about Homer Simpson's lines, they're all like that. You know, he's devastated, then he finds a donut or, you know. Or a floor uh, pie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. How, and you're, how, how do you... How do you think of each of the characters? Like when you're looking at, you know, uh, when you look at all the characters, Michael and George Michael and Job, like how do you categorize each one? Um, you know, a lot of it, like I, I have answers to that, but I think a lot of times people come up with answers after the fact because it makes them look more, I don't know, for some reason to say I meant to do that. It's just our primal urge. <laughs> right. I meant to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how did the uh, how did the you know um, the thing in in uh, Nashville go? Was that really successful? No, but I meant it to be kind of quiet in the audience. <laughs> I wanted to do. I wanted it to be more of a retrospective of my life. Yeah, the intention than was than a laugh out loud funny <laughs> thing because there was so much other comedy in that town. <laughs> I wanted to do an I, experiment to see if I could get people to pay as a group to not have fun. Yes. And, um, which is so much fun if you think about it. <laughs> I mean, the, but, the people there won't get it, but the people no, outside, no, no, no. it'll be hilarious. Yeah. It's kind of an inside joke. <laughs> what if we pack a theater? Uh, so, um, no, but, <laughs> um, but I did think there were certain instinctive things. Like, I wanted these siblings to run the gamut of, like... Um, sexuality and like even like masculine to feminine and it wasn't all like I remember auditioning I really wanted Rain Wilson for Job we just could not find a Job nobody could play it everyone kind of played it street or New York it was a weird choice everybody's like hey Michael let me tell you something <laughs> everybody you went like there. magic yeah honestly you know you'd get <laughs> You get people that just don't even play that kind of thing, playing that. Jason Priestley, nice to see you. Come on in. Why don't, should I just read this here? Okay. <laughs> hey, Michael. <laughs> Jason. Um, so we, the closest we came was was Rain Wilson, and there was something about like, so it's a family of weirdos. Like, you know what I mean? Like we had Buster already. We already had Tony Hale. And it's that same kind of comic energy in a funny way. We kind of needed, like, if it was um, Committee dell'arte, like, we'd need, like, the, the basso profundo. Yeah, <laughs> we'd need that guy. Wait a minute, Michael. Which, by the way, when they translate it into Italy, the guy that does Job is hilarious because it, <laughs> it is like this. <laughs> I am the fool. <laughs> um, but I did have, you know, and I also had kind of these, all these archetypes I was playing with. 
I wanted to do liberal and conservative for, the, for Michael and his twin sister. Um, that kind of disappeared a little bit, but I wanted Michael to be really conservative and her to be really liberal. But in a weird way, he was the liberal one because he was the bleeding heart, and she was the conservative one because, and don't take this the wrong way if you're conservative, she didn't care about anybody but herself. <laughs> and... <laughs> um, but wasn't that, do you think that, or maybe she just really cared and hoped that impoverished people would just lift themselves up and get that great <laughs> feeling of, hey, now I'm a millionaire. <laughs> Which is, you can't buy that feeling. But do, <laughs> but, do uh, but then I also had this thing of, of uh, I've said this before too, and it sounds so pompous, but it's just, for people who want to write, like I just like to reveal that I use these tricks because every, you know, you just use tricks, you know? You, I did a show once that I tried to base on the ego and the superego and the id. You know, like three characters. Jim Valley's the id, by the way. He is. Yeah. You're probably the ego. I, I, I'm glad no, you ego's think so. The, ego's the a good one. Oh, ego's, good. The good, ego's good. balancing it, you know? Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah, you're the Michael Bluth type. What? Yeah. yeah. But I, no, I uh, no, no, I don't mean it. No, no, it's not a compliment. What? Oh, shit. Um, are you so, saying you want me to play Michael Blues in the next season? I'm, <laughs> no! Fucking riot. Yeah, that would be... Listen, if you could do the Ecuadorian one, we just sold the rights. <laughs> Jorge Miguel. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I used this paradigm that I had learned when I was in college. And I, now, when I look it up, I can't find anything about it because it just takes me to me saying this. So maybe I dreamt it. But I remember reading somewhere that there was this thing of patriarch, matriarch, craftsman, and clown, and that that was in a lot of really successful foursomes. Like, if you think of the Beatles, um, uh, you know, Paul and and John are the matriarch and patriarch, Ringo's the clown, and the craftsman is George. And it it exists in Seinfeld, it exists in The Wizard of Oz. So I kind of went after that. I started there in designing those characters, where Michael and Lindsay were the patriarch and matriarch, and then the craftsman, even though he's such a clown, but the craftsman was Buster, because he was the academic. He was, like, serious. <laughs> and, the, you know, even though he didn't know what, you know... He, that kind of fell out of it, but we were just going to constantly have him taking classes and getting ready to get out into the real world. <laughs> and, and, um, and Job was the clown, because, you know, he's a, he's a clown. He's a magician. Right. Literally clowns. Um, so that kind of is where I started with that. And then I just filled it in, you know. Do you, because every, every character was equally strong, but it felt like the thing that they all had in common is that they all basically just were ultimately looking out for their own personal goals. Yeah, which is... Um, and then you mash a bunch of that together, and then that's where the comedy comes. Everyone's looking out for themselves. And this. Yeah, everybody, absolutely. I also often thought, you know, if they knew they were in Arrested Development, they would think it's a show about them. Like, it's, you know, it's about a show about a magician and his crazy brother. <laughs> oh, they would all think they were the central Does character. Does anybody in the audience think they're the weird one in the family? And you must be. Look, at you're going to a comedy festival, right? <laughs> That's a pretty amazing way to think about it. I never thought about that. Every character thinks they're the central character in the... Absolutely. Did you not know you're a guest star in my life right now? What? Yeah, yeah you're just... You, you have good billing. Oh, that's good. But yeah, I know. Good, I don't have all the responsibility. It's all about me inside here. <laughs> Who wrote the joke about... Uh, it would, would she, she hands him five bucks and she goes, here, go see a Star War. Like, I still wake up <laughs> laughing at that. That so, sounds like Jimmy. Go see a Star War. <laughs> go see a Star War. 
The other great Jimmy joke was, um, nah, it takes too much to set up. Let's roll the clip. Oh, we have no clips. <laughs> no. Nope. Um, let's roll that intro clip just one more time. So we, um, they were trying to figure out how to get a drug. Uh, Oscar thought he was talking about how to get marijuana into Lucille. Michael thought he was talking about Oscar having sex with his mother. How am I going to slip it to her? Michael said, I don't need to know the details. And Jimmy's joke, (laughs) maybe I'll put it in her brownie. Hey! (laughs) That was a biggie. The room gasped. (laughs) Maybe I'll put it in her brownie. So... And we were able to put it in t- we were put it on TV, you know, like it was. So you you said you always knew the show was going to get canceled. Yeah. So did it surprise you that it went for three seasons? Yeah, I, I I it was hard to figure out because a lot of what I wanted to do for whatever reason in that show was I wanted to plant clues and pay them off later, which is, you know, just folly in network television because you don't know if you're going to do another episode, and even like. Even down to, in the pilot, having scenes from the next Arrested Development. It's a pilot. There are no next scenes. You know what I mean? <laughs> just was like, no, I just wanted to will it to be. Like, this crazy determination. Um, and, yeah, there was kind of, it was always waiting. We were just always rescued in the nick of time by some nomination or some fan outreach. Uh, after we won, you know... Miraculously, I still, you know, the, I can't believe we ever got that show on the air. I can't believe it won awards the first year because nobody had seen it. And we won Best Comedy, which was just shocking. I mean, it was shocking to be nominated. Uh, just stun, stunning, really. And I remember going to uh, Fox the next day that you shoot on Sunday night. I mean, the Emmys are on Sunday night, and we had to be back at work on Monday. And they had a tiny little sign up that said, congratulations, Arrested Development. But you had to be on the lot to get there. Like, nobody saw it coming. Like, there wasn't even, like, do we have the font? Like, what? Like, they didn't know what to do with that. And, um, and I got called up to the head of the network's office. And I had to walk across the lot. And I remember thinking, okay, just, just be modest, you know? Don't, don't just, just. And I'd sort of plant, here's what I was going to say. I was going to say, no, you know what? Thank you. <laughs> For having the courage, you know, I had this whole thing, but, you know, you're the hero here. <laughs> so I'd obviously made you some assumptions. Do this without your decision. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I think you're a genius. <laughs> I'm going to give you an Emmy. I have to have a comeback. Yeah. Um, and, and I got up there, and the head of the network said, okay, so enough is enough now, seriously. I mean, now we've got this award. We've got to start making the show something people can understand, and we've got to start... <laughs> and I was stunned. I was like, yes, yes, of course, yes, absolutely. You know, and we got to take out, you know, you've got inside jokes, you've got callbacks, right? Yep, lose them, lose them. And it really wasn't until I got back to the office, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it was really... But I won an Emmy. I, I thought I did good. I know. Years later, by the way, I ran into that network executive and they said to me, did I ever tell you what happened the day after the Emmys? I got a call from Peter Chernin, because it's the Fox company, so there's always somebody higher. Yeah. You know, I'm running Fox. I just got Best Comedy uh, Emmy, and Peter Chernin has the audacity to call me and say, okay, now we've got to get serious. Enough screwing around. We've got to make this thing a hit. No more of these inside jokes. This person told me this. I said, you know, you called me right after and said that to me. What did he say? I don't recall that. 
<laughs> all sorts of crazy stuff like that was going on. Well, I mean, television is very much, uh, you know, it, it, it's so strange because the, the, the infrastructure of television is very much fear-based, and comedy does not thrive in a fear-based environment. So it's, it's really this kind of antithetical awesome. relationship of these two things somehow thriving. Absolutely, right. It's, it, it is by its nature, it, it's kind of imitative, Right? Because it, there's so much money at stake. I mean, that's why a place like Netflix ha- is really going to shake up. And obviously sponsors here, and I've worked with them and I work with them now. But they're, they're shaking up the model because it's the opposite of everything on broadcast television. If it is predictable, they don't want it. You know what I mean? If it is, even shows that are great shows like How I Met Your Mother, where you kind of have a general sense of that the set is going to be the same every week and the character... Like, that's not necessarily going to work on Netflix, where, you know, you're choosing to watch something, so you want something to evolve. Yeah. You kind of don't want it to repeat. Well, you have to, you know, if you're asking people to consume something in an alternative way on a mass scale, not to the early adopter nerds who've been watching stuff online for a long time, but to, on a mass scale, you have to offer them something that's different or better than what... You would think, right? I mean, the problem with network TV is... Well, first of all, there's this lie of the Nielsens, um, which is this weird kind of um, thing that everybody has agreed to lie about. It's, a, it's something like 10,000 people. Yeah. That it, it Do you, are you guys measures. aware of this? Do you know how the Nielsen system works? It's like 10,000 boxes essentially account for... Every... You know, it, it's an incredibly small sample. I mean, the average airport has, you know, 100,000 people moving around in it at any point. So you're making decisions based on maybe one, you know, what does one Asian couple think of this show in, let's say, Memphis, Tennessee? Okay, Asians hate this show in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> you know, maybe they were out to dinner. Yeah, you know, It really, it's, it's the classic small sample problem, which is like, I've seen it explained that if you had a hundred black marbles and a hundred white marbles in an urn, and you were to grab four, which is a small sample, you have a good chance of just finding four black ones. Right. And you would say, wow, they're all black marbles. Uh, African-American. Okay, 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 good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, obviously, that's, we know that's not what's in the, in the urn. Well, it's an Let's old... Let's go to the graphic. It's an old... <laughs> Yeah, there you can see right there. It's shaped like a microphone, but it, it, it but it basically is a it's it's sort of an old mentality of you know when there were just three channels and it's like yeah. oh well everyone watches this and everyone. So, so how have you avoided being truly the star of a sitcom? <laughs> right? Wouldn't you think like that would be? No, I tried. I you know I went through. I, went, I did pilot season for like ten years, and you know I was just never. There are better auditioners. Than I am, and and also I always sort of fell in between uh, leading guy and like funny sidekick, and right. so they just never knew what to do with me. And there were right. you know there were more Matt, there were so many Matt Perry's out there who were yeah. just so much better of that guy that I'm like ah, I just you're not Matt Perry. I am. Could okay, I be I, any I more like Matt Perry? <laughs> yeah. Um, could I be more like <laughs> Thank Matt you. Perry? Right, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you picked up my yes and. Uh, but it, uh, yeah, it, Matt Perry was sort of the he was the the archetype for that guy yeah. in, in that in the period of time when well, I was auditioning. Well, and you would have gotten typecast as one thing, and and as as your fans know, as everyone knows, you do so many different things and have so many different moves, basically. That it, I think it wouldn't have been good for you. It would have to, been. I mean, it, to get locked into a show, and mo- and most sitcoms are just not good. I mean. Yeah. You know, it's like so many jokes have been done, 
And that, I think that's why Arrested is such a, like, holy shit, how did someone find a way to present comedy and in a new way when it just sort of felt like, well, yeah, there's no more stories but to tell. I, I think a lot of that is tone. I think it was just a reaction to, like, predictable jokes. I mean, I, when I was looking for clips, we actually can't show clips. We couldn't get it hooked up. Um, you know, blame Netflix, honestly. <laughs> they don't know anything about tech. Um, no, but I was looking up, and I remembered this thing I did, I was telling you, on the John Larroquette show, where we had um, Betty White on it, and it was like a takeoff on Sunset Boulevard, and she kind of got crazy, and then they did this, we did this Golden Girls reunion, and they did a Golden Girls musical. It was madness, right? And I remember it being very funny, so I found a clip of it on YouTube, which I was going to show, and it's funny until you hear that laughter. Like, if you can tune out the laughter, the canned laughter, you realize, oh, those are funny jokes. Yeah. But they, I mean, I'm telling you, there's something about, it's, it's now, where it used to be, when I Love Lucy did it, I guess, it used to be, um, oh, this is funny. For some reason, I feel like this is funny. And, and, you know, you're sort of subconsciously hearing a crowd laughing. Now it has the opposite effect. Oh, they want me to think that's funny. That's stupid. Well, that's yeah, like, because we like, become really aware, yep. and then we also become really like, don't tell me when to think I, that. Yeah. How dare you? I know. I know. It's like somebody saying, want to hear something funny? But I you know why? Because I think... just say no, because it's like, I know I'm not going to be able to laugh. <laughs> I hate it when people tell me jokes. I go like this. It's... Just wait till it's all right. I even try to hold my breath so I can come out like a real laugh. Because... Ha! <laughs> 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 just... Uh... <laughs> Now it feels, or you'll go, oh, that's funny. I do, yeah, yeah, but yeah it's, big time. But I guess it's the, uh, you know, as an audience member, it sort of feels like someone high up didn't trust the comedy. Like, oh, you didn't I trust know. it, so you're trying to tell me where, because you don't I know. trust and it. and I think that was like Arrested Development. You know, uh, just, we, kind of, we tried to get drier and drier and drier, and my favorite moment of that was when George Sr. was in the hospital and um, and we'd done this sort of episode about Atkins where they were, they were all, all on the Atkins diet. It was like, you know, ah, you finish your bacon. Come on, man. We got, a, we got a big day. Try to get some bacon down and then let's go. <laughs> they were just eating all that stuff, um, which we all believed at that moment. And, um, and at one point, uh, Tambor is in a coma and the doctor says, you know, we've been just trying to give him this simple glucose serum, you know, um, drip, but he just, he keeps pushing it away. And Michael, I, I've never seen Jason do less, said, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do this justice, but he just said, we're all trying to stay away from sugar. <laughs> just nothing. Just gave it nothing. And that same joke, by the way, we're all trying to stay away from sugar. You know, it's just like, ha, 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 like awful. So I think a lot of it is tone. Well, yeah. The, yeah, because there's a difference between um, w- you know, when you have like a four-camera sitcom where you're you're playing to. It's like a podcast is different if we're playing to you versus if we were just one-on-one. Yeah, those moments are just for us as but, opposed to lobbing them out. But we, here's the weird thing about it. Maybe one of you will do this before I do it. But it does seem like the solution to this is do it like The Daily Show. Do a sitcom like The Daily Show or like Saturday Night Live. None of us are offended by the laughter in that. It's real laughter. It, sometimes it's late. Like, there are just things that you, again, subconsciously recognize. Or they'll show those pre-shot pieces, and you'll hear that kind of muffled laughter in the background yeah. in the wrong spot sometimes. Right. And it's delightful. And I think if somebody comes along and says, all right, we're going to do either a live sitcom or, 
you know, live the way that David Letterman's show is live. Like, it's, it's shot, it's pre-taped. But once, you know, one take, we don't take the best version of every line. We, you know, because it becomes irresistible to, like, what was the biggest laugh on every line? And the other big lie is that the reason the audience is laughing, because they are really laughing... Sometimes it's just because it, it zigged instead of zagged. Like they've heard it, the joke with a cigarette 30 times, and then finally some, you know, take 15, someone says banana, and they, they go crazy, you know, and then they use that on the show. Yeah, as, and they just sort of repurpose. Yep. They can repurpose. But I think a lot of people, a lot of people don't like doing it in front of an audience. It's not as safe to them as a performer. I'm but I think sure. it's way better. The comedy people do. Uh, yeah, comedy people. You need an audience. Like, you need... If, if, if there is no one in the room, comedy people will start playing to the cameraman or the crew because well, we they could, just need to... We could test that. What? Do you, would you guys mind stepping out into the lobby? Could you guys just go out for a second? And we just want to see We're what happens. We're going to finish this conversation. Just, yeah, just see what happens. And then bring it back in. Yeah, yeah. He was right. Totally different. Yeah, it was hilarious. Yeah, totally different. So how did it feel to come back after so many years, you know, when, I mean, because that was sort of, in the, in the comedy nerd circles, that was looming for a long time, like, oh, Arrested's coming back, oh, no, it's not, oh, it's coming back, oh, I no, know. it's not. They kept teasing with that, I hated that, I hated that, that was, and, and, and I, you know, like, every time I would run into Jeffrey Tambor and I'd say to him, yeah, well, we're, we're trying to get it going, and then he would tell the press, and then it would say, <laughs> they're teasing us again, and it was, just, it was awful. I mean, it was the, the only reason to do it was for the fans, as a thank you to the fans, and we ended up just antagonizing the fans all the time. <laughs> it was crazy. And, um, and then by the time I finally kind of got, was free enough to do this movie, and it looked like we had all the actors at the same time, because that was a big part of it, I suddenly realized there was too much story to tell. Uh, so I kind of, you know, like even if you did five minutes of each character, you'd be 45 minutes into the movie w- before anybody had a conversation, right? right. So, um, and so that's what gave birth to this Netflix idea that, you know, so much of things are perception but, um, or expectation. But the Netflix thing was just going to be these little webisodes about each of the characters. That, that's all I was thinking. Like just maybe a 15 minute thing about maybe, and they'd all be separate. And then it started getting press. And there started being big expectations. So I started, like, that fourth season really became this giant puzzle. Because I couldn't get all the actors at the same time anymore. Um, We couldn't shoot in order. It was madness. So we were shooting. So we ended up doing this story that was, like, happening at the same time for every character. And there were all these intersections that the audience would find out later if they watched all the way through. Um, and that you would so for instance this scene right here I would think this is great you know this is a good interview and I really think he liked me and um, and he's so cute and and then I would find out afterwards that you're just you know you're out on parole and you're just out for the day and you got to get back you know in when right. I got to your episode so that I would have made all these wrong assumptions anyway um, it, it started building this expectation and I started taking all this stuff that I was going to use in the movie and sort of squeezing it back into the TV show. But it was so much fun to be back with everybody, except for... Well, don't worry about it. Oh, yeah, no, it's fine, yeah. Is it... No, it's great. Everybody was great. I mean, I... Everybody was so much fun. I mean, when you're... When you when you create... Char- when you create really strong characters that you love, is it frustrating when it's over and you sort of feel like they're just... Does it ever feel un? Did it ever feel unfinished? Like they're just floating out there, and I can't ever write them no, again. I mean, I think I think of a lot of stuff for them all the time. The whole and sometimes we don't even get to it. The whole Joe being in love with Ben Stiller run. <laughs> it was just based on this idea that Job was going to have 
some sort of anal sex with Tony, right? And that, and that he, he was... Well, first of all, one of the fun things was that, like, of course he's the gay one. You know what I mean? Like, the pageantry and the, you know, and the overt, uh, hyper, you know, masculinity and everything, right? So, um, and the denial. And Tobias is straight. Yeah, that was never an issue. Anyway... The whole thing was going to be that he had come up with a great magic trick because he knew he was going to have to get intimate with Tony uh, Wonder this way. So what he had done is he had, he had taken um, a, a polymer, some sort of plastic, and he had, he had melted it around his erect penis, and then he had rolled it off, and then he had kept it in his wallet. And so the idea was that when he was going to have sex with Tony Wonder, he would take out this thin sheath that he had made and put it onto his penis so that he wasn't actually gay. And then everybody was like... <laughs> and we, it was just going to be George Michael just listening to this and finally saying, a condom? And, and then Joe was going to say, no, but it's for the man to wear. <laughs> just clearly had no idea. had never learned... <laughs> that was the genesis of that whole thing. Like, well, we've got to do the condom joke. And it didn't even make it in. And it was long. We did shoot it. We did shoot it. It was just endless, endless. We just kept finding... Was, so I would, imagine, I would imagine with that type of a show, there's not really a lot of room for improv because you have so many story points to cover. In right? the original series, there wasn't. In this one, because I was direct or co-directing them, I was on the set a lot, so I wasn't in the room as much. So I ended up kind of improving with the actors a lot and kind of writing it on the set. There was a lot of writing on the set. It was really crazy. And just things like... And everybody just went with it. Where We were shooting Tony Hale um, just like missing his mother and then it was like, well, let's... Uh, let's do a quick montage here. Let's, and then, you know, finally after like doing three little bits, like Tony Hale saying, should I take off my clothes and just sew at the sewing machine? Said, yes. <laughs> You should do that. You should. Um, and there were all sorts of things, like, the, the, again, the Tony Wonder, Will Arnett thing, all that same, same stuff. It just totally happened on the set. Arnett just said same at one point, and I thought that was hilarious. Same. I just thought it was hilarious. So then I sort of ran out and said to, to Ben Stiller, hey, you should say same at the end of that, right? And then we changed the angles, and it's like, why don't you guys try to say something at the same time and then you're not successful, then just say, same, at the end of it. And then they would just start throwing them in, and then the next day we shot the mask scene, if anybody knows that scene I'm talking about. And it was like, same, you're same. They became like the whole, just because of this word on the set. So but you also it's have, like a controlled improv, kind of. But you have to, you know, you have to be willing to be open and flexible and go out on a limb in the moment and try stuff yeah. and not, and, yeah. and also... Yeah, well, let's, you know, we have to keep the story going. Yeah, no, it was, it was super challenging because I also had this constant anxiety that none of this would make sense. Because we really didn't have, we'd get Portia de Rossi and Tony Hale for one day. And I knew they had a scene in, in like episode eight, but we hadn't written episode eight yet. But I kind of knew generally what the scene is. So we'd really quickly write the scene, be painted into that corner. Then, like, maybe three months later, we'd come around to that show again and realize, wait, we set this up differently than it's written, and we'd have to kind of improv our way out of it. It was really, it was madness. So it's essentially like you've created your own comedy steeplechase that you had yeah. to somehow make yeah, it through. Yeah, definitely. definitely. But, but it, do you, so how would you, I mean, that's, 
that's really like high level comedy writing. I would imagine when people write, when people come to Hollywood and they write spec scripts, that like Arrest Development is not a spec script you should try to write, right? Like that <laughs> well, shouldn't be your know. first script. I mean, I, listen, everybody. You can't compare... I mean, this is also important for creative people, and I'm telling myself this, too. You can't compare a first draft to somebody's last draft. And if anybody out here is trying to write a screenplay or writing music, and then you, you, know, you hear something on the radio or you see a great movie, and you just hate your thing, and it kind of becomes this obstacle to actually putting it down on paper, it, that stuff, you've just got to remember, it's a process. That first draft is bad. You know, it doesn't come out of the pen good. And I learned that every single week. We'd turn these scripts in. I'd be like working all night on Sunday night to just get them finally to the stage for Monday morning when the actors were coming in. And it would have finally all coalesced and all the pieces made sense the way I wanted it to and things tied together. And then I'd be looking at a blank page again. And I just hated it. Like... I can't do this again. I don't know how. That's why I wasn't that sad when it was canceled. Oh, because of the stress. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but yet, yeah, every time, you know, it's a layering process. And I don't know. I say that to encourage me. <laughs> well, most people judge themselves as they're before. Oh, that's dumb. Or I shouldn't. It's like, no, just fucking oh, write it down. It's I'm a, doing that fix on it. two projects right now. I'm saying, oh, but that's dumb. But I think that's also, I mean, as long as, that, as long as you acknowledge that that's part of your process. Like, I'm going to say it's dumb, but I also know that I'll ignore that and keep writing anyway. As long as it's not your roadblock, I think yeah, that's Yeah, okay. it, it, it is my roadblock. Would you want to hear the dumb ones? Yes. Uh, no, they're not. I can't, I can't, because then I'll end up, and the Netflix finds out, and then they say, why is he telling us the dumb one? <laughs> um, no, but, but honestly, it's, it, it is, you're absolutely right. It's, and as a comedian, you know this. Like, you've got to allow yourself to go down those roads, even if they're sort of seem well trodden, because it, it, it everything is a variation on something else. Sure. And I love that you're saying, you know, Arrested seemed wholly original in the sense that there was nothing on like it, but there kind of was. I mean, I took a lot from The Simpsons. I took a lot from the Larry Sanders show. That was a biggie. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of Seinfeld in it to me in terms of how stories come together. You know, and, and so everybody's kind of style ends up being their version of plagiarism. Like what, the, you know, the, the force is coming in and then how it comes out of your brain. I, I, I don't know if, this, if you ever draw this, saw this parallel, but I saw a very strange parallel of structure between Arrested and Breaking Bad. Oh, where it was basically just a bunch of characters who were sort of all like dealing with their own shit and it just crashing into each other and then shit paying off way down the road that you never thought of. No, I, I think most people saw that and were just like, they're fucking ripping off Mitch Hurwitz. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> and is he pissed? He must be so pissed. Especially when that show did so well. Like, you're welcome, guys. <laughs> no, I, I'll tell you what I did. Kind of, um, I, uh, it was the it was the Sopranos. I used a lot of the Sopranos. Really, I loved the idea of like a core family, but that you know that show got to a place where it would be Tony Soprano's nephew Christopher Moltisanti. I'm going to get the names wrong. His girlfriend Adriana, and then like the FBI person she's hanging out with, and then that FBI person's husband. Who, by the way, was Will Arnett. Oh, yeah. Shit. And I used that as an example long before he was ever in the show. And I would talk about how there's like an FBI guy that they're starting to do episodes with. And, and yet it always kind of comes back to Tony. And I loved the idea that a show could grow and sprawl and that there would be things in one episode that, you know, you would know would be looming but wouldn't 
come out there. I feel like you sort of, ha- it seems to me like you kind of have to do that in a way if you want the show to, because it's just, it's just hard to write for the same four people over and over and over yeah. and over and over and over and over again. Well, the, aud- the audacious thing that we did was, plant, you know, was like putting in, I remember when the junior executive found out, maybe ten episodes in, the junior executive at Fox found out, why are you doing all this? She said to me, why are you doing all this Saddam Hussein stuff? There had just been a line about, like, <laughs> they saw a picture of Saddam's palace, and Michael said, does that look like our kitchen island? <laughs> and I said, all right, here's the deal. I, I had been looking for a crime that George Sr. had committed that he was not, that he, it's why, I was looking for the reason he wasn't trying to get out of prison. And the idea was that because if he fights this thing, there's a bigger crime hanging over his head. It was kind of, that was kind of plagiarized from Capturing the Freedmans, where this man is accused, it's a great documentary, and this man is accused of like these ridiculous things about being a child molester, like crazy stuff. And nobody in the family could understand, like, why is he not fighting it? And the reason he wasn't fighting it is because he had bought kitty porn earlier in his life. Like, there was this other crime that he was just terrified of coming out. So, um, so he just, well, you know, what are you going to do? So I wanted something like that for George, you know, and it, the funniest one seemed to be high treason. <laughs> you know, may have committed, I think he called it, some light treason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Medium to light treason. Um, and so, so we came up with the idea that he was building, you know, um, these awful model homes for Saddam Hussein. And, um, and I, so I, the executive found out and she said, does Gail know? Gail Berman was running Fox at, the, at that time. And I said, no. And she said, she thought about it for a long time. And she said, don't tell her. Because <laughs> it was so, you know, it seemed like they're going to, they'll shut us down. Like any time they're going to find out we're breaking some rules like that. Well, it's amazing that you were able to, I get, did you just lie to them? Yeah, I just, just, uh, yeah. <laughs> why, why the, why, see, why are they always talking about Saddam Hussein? And, and, you know, at one point it was like, that looks like our outdoor living area. <laughs> no, just a running joke. Yeah. <laughs> and you just sort of crossed your fingers like, yeah, maybe they're not watching it. Yeah, and not really knowing how that was going to pay off, too. But, you know, eventually it became... <laughs> that, that, uh, it was the house that all the Saddam Hussein lookalikes lived in. And George had said earlier in, this, in like one of the seasons when he was accused of knowing Saddam Hussein, he said, I, I thought it was the soup Nazi. <laughs> and, and then we did get the soup Nazi to be one of the Saddam Husseins. <laughs> Just you know, weird. Like, was, there ever, was there ever one sort of Easter egg joke that no one picked up on that you... There's still a lot out there that, um, that they're not meant to pick up on because they're being paid off later. I don't know if I should say. Is there just one? Is it just one? Uh, wait. I don't want to tell you that one. Shit. <laughs> have I, have uh, we we do. Uh, no, well, I don't want to tell you that. So? It'd be fun to. to well. <laughs> well, a lot of the stuff. I, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Give us this one. Uh, we do find out the origin of the chicken dance. We will find out eventually why that, how that came to be. Okay. And why they all got it wrong. Okay. Good. That's something to look out for. That's a little something. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love to open the floor to questions. If you guys have some questions, we'll have, have a few minutes to ask some. If you, um, I, uh, I, will, I will come out into the audience so that, it, so that if you're listening to the podcast, it's not like you in the front row. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. 
That's All a right. Really good idea. What is your name? Hi, I'm Allison, and I, I wanted to know: Is there one particular character that people say you plagiarize from their family more often than not? Because I swear to God, you've met my grandmother, and she's gaggy. Okay. What's your name? Allison. What? Everett. It's gaggy. <laughs> Unbelievable. What a special moment. This is a very special moment. Um. Yeah, there was, well, my wife's family, they're, they're, um, her parents are named George and Lucille. And uh, her mother was, it was, she just passed recently. Um, and she, um, uh, she just passed on a great part in a uh, Steven <laughs> Spielberg film. It's crazy. Because she was too mean. Yeah. Um, and she, um, uh, she would, she had, so Mary Jo's brother is named Jeek. G-E-K, George Edward Keenan. And so that, first of all, was like, what? It's not Gek? I thought that was hilarious. So that's where Job came from, but there's nothing like him in Job. And then, but the mother, her mother was just incredibly funny, mean, um, you know, even at the funeral, they were like, they would tell stories about, I remember finally saying, I love you, Grandma. And she said, thanks for calling. <laughs> Those were <laughs> so amazing. But she said to her, one of her daughters once, my sister, I mean, my, my wife has sisters that are much older than she is. So one was going to school, I think, when Kennedy was in office. And when her mother visited the college, um, she said to this girl, congratulations, you now weigh more than the President of the United States. <laughs> just a wonderful insult. Um, yeah, and she used to say, I don't understand why, you know, you made the mean character Lucille, but then really, in the same breath, would say, I don't care for Jeek. <laughs> so that was autobiographical. Hello? <laughs> Hello? Are you on his lap? What's your... All right, I can be. No reason I can't be. That is so cozy. Can you um, slowly rock me as you ask a question? <laughs> Hello, my name is uh, Daniel Ramey. And uh, I was wondering, so you've talked a lot about how Fox... Just for the podcast listeners, he is rocking him. Yep. As he's so... He's good at it, too. I know, no, no, it's a good speed. I practice. So, um, so you've talked about how Fox uh, was re-upping the show under different circumstances. Why do you think Fox agreed to do the show in the first place? Uh, you Thank know you. what? I, it was um, oh, someone, someone wake up, Chris. <laughs> oh, oh, it was bound to oh, happen. I had the most beautiful dream. <laughs> um, I, I think um, I I don't completely know, but there were certain manipulations that I did put into the system, like the on the next Arrested Development, which really was because I knew that one of the questions they ask in testing, and they make all these decisions based on testing, was would you see another one? Would you want to watch another one? So I, that was a, an absolute pander to that question where I thought they would just make them say, yeah, I want to see, you know, I want to see the, the boy as he's watching the girl take the shower. And I want to see the guy in prison. So that was a, that was a complete trick. Um, also, I had uh, Ron Howard was kind of my big shot on that one, right? So they really wanted to be in business with Ron Howard. Even though he had Imagine TV, he hadn't personally been involved in a lot of those. And then the other manipulation was I talked him into being the narrator, which, you know, he kept saying, well, I don't, you know, you don't, you don't have to use me. You can get someone better. And I said, no, there's no one better. And what I really meant was I want them to know you're part of this show. Like, I want to keep your star power. Um, and he was so great. I mean, I'm still surprised, by the way, 
that Ron Howard has not had a voiceover career because it's just such an earnest Americana voice, you know. But anyway, so, so but it's very strange they picked it up. I think it really... Here's another kind of amazing thing. Bateman had just done like 10 pilots in a row in, in over 10 years. And I went to him with this script, and, and he wanted to do it. I sort of talked him into doing it a little bit. He was going to audition for something else, and he said, no, no, I'll do this. And then when he finally saw it cut together, he said, hey, this, I think it's funny. I said, you didn't think it was going to be funny? <laughs> and he said, I, no, I didn't think it was going to work. <laughs> and I was so impressed by this. I really, it's, and I said, well, why did you do it? And he said, oh, because I liked it. Because I really liked it. And that's like, talk about being fearless. Like, this is a guy that could have overmanaged his career and said, you know what? I can't mess around. I've got to do, you know, something else that would have been canceled in an hour. And he made this crazy choice to do this one. And, you know, and I was almost just like everybody believed in it. It was just a, we slipped through the cracks in that pilot. What is uh, your name in question? Uh, my name's Jordan. I was just curious to know how evil you felt ending season four on such a cliffhanger, I, not knowing what's going to come after that. Yeah. Yeah. I felt medium evil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, again, you're tricking people. Or like uh, what would be like a, a, an Asian six. <laughs> <laughs> or a European 11. I, whatever you want. Um, no, here's the thing about that. There was, there was, uh, I had always thought of the series as act one of this movie, right? And then the movie was going to follow it, which, you know, it'll either, something will happen. <laughs> it'll either be a movie or a series or something. We're going to answer the story because the plot is all worked out. That part of it, it's so obvious, but that I, and I wanted to end on a cliffhanger, but I didn't realize how dark everybody would find it because it's the, well, only because it's, it's the start of, like, if you look at any movie and you get to the act break, the first what we call act break, you know, so Jim Carrey loses his job and his girlfriend and he's down in the dumps. Like, that is how that... you got to get to that bad stuff so that he can then find the, the thing, the magic thing, and then whatever happens. Um, they're doing this one, by the way. I just sold it. I just set it up. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, The Magic Thing. Um, so, so I really just always thought of it as like, right, we'll get them all into a perilous situation, just make their lives as bad as it can be so that the next step is they have to come back together. Um, but, of course, without knowing there's a next step, yeah, I could see how it's interpreted as a real bummer. <laughs> yeah. But, again, you're also kind of tricking them into, like, well, now you got to do it I know. because Absolutely. everyone yep. wants to know. Yep. Absolutely. That's a big part of it. Hi, my name is Jenna, and my question Jenna. is, what themes or jokes did you think were hilarious and really wanted to use that either Fox shut down or just didn't end up working? Um, tons of them. I was wrong so many times. Uh, I'll tell you one weird one. It's not, this isn't really hilarious, but I, I, we did write this whole thing for Michael Moore, and the, and the, the joke was going to be, it was right after Fahrenheit 9-11, and the joke was going to be that, you know, they had a problem with their public image, and uh, Michael Moore was going to come up to <laughs> Lucille, as he did in the movie uh, 9-11, to all the senators, and say, would you send your child to Iraq? And she was going to say, yes, yeah, absolutely, go, <laughs> go, take him, go, he'll go. Um, and we heard, you can't use Michael Moore. Uh, why not? It's a Rupert thing. 
Oh. That was kind of the, like we don't know if it was a Rupert thing or there's the people around Rupert protecting him. And but it was at that point there was just the, the Fox News hated Michael Moore. I know. But didn't you... Uh, but I know. And so I was like, well, w- we have to do this. We have to... And then finally, it was like a bunch of people that were closer to me than that super top of the mountain that said, it really puts us in a bad position. And I said, can I do a Michael Moore lookalike? Yes, anything. Anything but that. <laughs> anything but Michael Moore. And well, so sometimes those just become the jokes. You know? Well, yeah, but, the, but that's the thing about having... Uh, you know, is, is it sort of fun for you to work in a structure in that sense because it forces you to write jokes around Absolutely. and even kind of get yes. like, oh, okay, well, we'll get crazier because you shot this one down. Oh, that happens all the time. Wait, I have to think of a good example. Like, um, no, it's not a good example. All right, I'm going to come back to that. But yes, it does happen all the time where, again, it's like you're, you're painted into corners, things that you can't do. Um, yeah, sometimes it happens with casting. You, you end up with better casting because you don't get the person you want. Mm-hmm. Um, Henry Winkler was one of those. Like, it wasn't, you know, he, he hadn't really done... He'd done some Adam Sandler movies. He wasn't at the top of the comedy list. And uh, the person we went to um, was, just, it was some movie star that just would never do it, you know? And we got Henry Winkler, and we just lucked out. I mean, we would such an upgrade. That happens all the time. Uh, th- yes, sir, right here. Yeah, uh, where did you come up with the Martin Short character? <laughs> okay, well, interesting, we're talking about, like, what fans liked and what, what I thought wouldn't... Work. The Martin Short character was the funniest thing. Like, we're all giant, you know, people in my generation were all huge Martin Short fans. Probably everybody is. At the time, you know, it was such a big get. And I, I met with him... I met with him in a restaurant, and he was talking about himself. He's such a funny guy, and he was telling me about what he wants to do in his career. And then he said, so tell me about you. And I said, well, I started out, and I almost, I got about to the word golden girls, and I watched his eyes just sort of drift off. <laughs> and I said, oh, I've lost you. What? No, I'm sorry. And I, I think he was being funny. I, I can't tell. But... Um, but we just had this idea of this sort of Jack LaLanne kind of character that had all this power and that, you know, clearly the family, you know, Lucille had some backstory with. And it was the only show, we were such Martin Short fans, we did probably 11 minutes of that show is just this character's backstory, you know, about how he had Jim, you know, he was in these old movies and we saw the movies and then he ran all these health spas and, and then when, on his 85th birthday, he lost the use of his legs when he tried to lift his own weight over his head and, you know, Martin Short saying, too much! <laughs> and I'm telling you, we were breathless with laughter and then we put that show out and at least for the first couple of months, the fans, like there were message boards, just like, what are they doing? They're ruining the show. Why do they do this? People hated it. I was way off there. I think, I don't know if people love it now. I still love it. You know, sitting on the end of, on that railing, you know, all alone out there. <laughs> you sure you're okay there, Jack? Oh, dragons got me. <laughs> like, no, dragons in the dragons in the bathroom, and then Martin Short with the now famous Mama. Anyway, <laughs> what is your uh, name and question? Hi, I'm Philip Maloney, and uh, I know everyone's probably hassling you about this, the blogosphere and everything. But uh, when can we expect the next season? of the Golden Girls. 
That's a fair well, question. Cause okay, ghosts. That's a fair question. Cause ghosts. That's a fair question. There is, you know, we've been talking to the industrial light and magic people. They're, <laughs> they're halfway through B. Arthur's face. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's good. It's good. You know, the big would be great to do is like a, a movie about that era. You know, the big the thing that happened. I've also I've never heard anyone talk about this, but eh, it's kind of gross. Do it. But on every every Friday night tape night, someone would have used roses. I mean, I mean Betty's bathroom and not flushed. Like in her, it appeared to be a hostile act. <laughs> And it did it. It was believed to be B. Arthur. What? B. Arthur was a stealth shitter. It's not a pleasant story. <laughs> it's more Vince Gilligan than Mitch Hurwitz. <laughs> but we would see B. You know, loading up at the craft service table. It was the. It really was a weird thing. They installed cameras. They couldn't catch the guy or lady. <laughs> was there that? Does that answer your question? Uh, that's yeah. why. <laughs> yes. Some. Uh, yes. What is your name? Hello, my name is John Nesbitt. Thanks for coming to Nashville. Oh, uh, two so quick questions for you. Uh, what is your favorite Easter egg joke, like the Wee Britain sign or arm off, or what is your favorite reoccurring joke? Oh, well, let's see. I, the Anne stuff d- does always kill me. The infinite ways that you cannot see her in a room. And talk about a joke that, okay, this is an example of a joke we didn't do. Um, what, uh, the original, my idea for Anne was that I wanted to fool the audience the way that Michael was fooled, and I wanted to just cast a different Anne for every show. And then I wanted to start changing them within the show. So, like, act one Anne would be different. So that we would all feel like, that's Anne? Like, you know what I mean? I just felt like you could do it. Like, there were enough people that kind of had that dirty dishwater hair and, like, that little soft face. And, like, and, and there is one where there's another Anne. So the first time we used it, there's another Anne. And then Mae Whitman came in, and I just cast her because it's like, great, the right face. And she's brilliant. She's so funny. So I ended up using her. So anyway, I love that one. I love that they don't, you know, no, it's as, <laughs> it's as Anne as the nose on plane's face. Um, and wait, what was the other question? What? Uh, oh, Easter eggs. Um, there. Um, yeah, God, I haven't thought about them in a while. The, I worked really hard to. So the this was a really complicated one, but Anyang, who they adopted, I, his real name was Hedo or Hello, which meant in Korean one day. And even in the pilot. I had always wanted to make it that there was another family that had started, like a, a Filipino family, and then it became Korean family, that had started the frozen banana stand, and that Lucille had them deported. And, and that, so that there was this bad guy, you know, I wanted to do this, like, the glove, you know, like it was just a family, just a typical family comedy with a bad guy who would leave a glove, you know? <laughs> the glove's been here. <laughs> I still kind of want to do that. But, um, but that was going to be Anyang, and, and at one point we, we see that the banana stand is being pulled out of the bay, and it actually says hello on it, and that was to set that up. And you can barely see it. There was seaweed all over it. So that was one of our failed hidden Easter eggs. What is your name, sir? Hi, I'm Mike. Uh, so I think one of the best setups ever was the Save Our Blues episode, where 
uh, and one of these people will die. Oh, that's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, Save how, our how did the whole thing come about? Uh, well, so that one was like I always like to have some, one thing in a show that I could kind of I could understand the show was about. I just didn't want it to be just a bunch of stuff. Um, and sometimes it would just be, oh, it's mission accomplished. That's, it's just one joke, but this is all, and that was in the news at the time, this is all building to, they're building a fake house, there's nothing inside, they're patting themselves on the back, and it was sort of satire that way. Um, another one, uh, sometimes it would be based on an emotional thing, like the, um, the Bachelor Party show was just a bunch of stuff until, to me anyway, until it kind of came around to Michael telling his brother, you're a better man than dad. Like, it's just one line, you know, but that... And then it was like the final season. We kind of had a sense it was the final season. And we had this show with just a bunch of stuff in it. And I, I just didn't... I was miserable about it, like nauseous about it. It was... They were making... They were having this dinner party and... Someone was going to, oh, George Michael was going to private school. It was just a bunch of stuff. And I got this call from Peter Liguori at Fox who said, look, you know, I know you're in the middle of shooting this week um, or next, you got next week's show, um, but we're canceling the show. And, you know, we've got the Pamela Anderson show coming on. And even I was like, oh, of course, I get it. It was called Stacked. Oh, yes. Yeah. I barely sort of remember that. Get it? It's like how women are stacked and how books at a bookstore in the past tense were stacked. Oh, shit, I just got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was, it almost worked. <laughs> but it did seem like, you know, oh, it's got tits in the title. <laughs> we're dead. So, but we were canceled. But it was like the best thing that ever happened to episode nine of season three. <laughs> it was like, oh, now we have a point of view. We finally have a point of view. We're being mistreated. You kind of love being mistreated in, in comedy, you know, something to get angry about. So that just, it all just became, that was really our most meta show before everybody was doing meta all the time. But yeah, and, but they did it so dry, you know, to, you know, save our blues. And, and it was also, um, yeah, the HBO joke in there, right? Like, oh, the home, HBO's not going to do this. You know, the home builder organization isn't, you know. <laughs> No, it's showtime. We have to <laughs> have to get our act together. Uh, how did yeah, you, that was a fun one, though. How did you just quickly? How did you pitch this show to a network person? Uh, like the uh, that episode, or you mean no, just no, the, the whole original series? series how did um, you pitch it? I brought in a uh, I brought in a chart, and there were all these characters on it. Lucille Two was on it, and I remember Ron Howard saying, "Don't don't pitch Lucille Two. Like I'd already pitched." You know, three characters whose names had George in them. You know, it just was like, oh, wait, but there's another Lucille. Yeah, you don't, that doesn't have to be in the pitch. Um, and yeah, it was a complicated pitch. I, I, I remember at ABC someone saying to me, um, so everybody's weird? And I said, and then this was really just lame. But I, I'm still embarrassed about this. But I said, well, look around the room, right? And I said, <laughs> and I just went at everybody's affectation, which was just not cool. You know, like you've got a soul patch. He spikes his hair. She's wearing an onk. You know, and it was silence. You know, <laughs> but I overpitched is the answer. Like you can almost not pitch too little for those of you who ever want to go into this. You could, it's almost like if you, if you go in, someone told me this once, it's like going into the network and saying, okay, so this B 
beautiful woman uh, walks into the room, you know, and they're, they're, they're on board. But then when you go on and you say, you know, she's 5'2", 200 pounds, really short hair, it's like, oh, no, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> I liked my version of the beautiful woman in my head. So I really did go out on a limb by pitching all these specifics, including that um, Marta was... Job's girlfriend, and there was a whole sub-story about how Marta had these two kids that Job just hated, and it was going to be like this violent war between them. Like the Bloods and the Crips. I think we have, uh, maybe have time for one or two more questions. Yes, sir. Hey, um, I know this has also probably been like burning up the blogosphere or anything. Uh, (laughs) When can we expect, like, season one of Coogler? (laughs) Oh, God. I had to see it to, uh, for, like, looping, to change lines? It's not what I thought I looked like. If that's what I look like, I'd like to apologize. No, of course it's what I look like. I just, you know, not being an actor, have you seen yourself on, on uh, camera? You look crazy, right? Yeah. Another Jim Valley line, insanity photographs. Like, the craziest people look the sanest on camera, and the saner people look crazy. But it was, it was, it was really fun working with Dan Harmon. And, and I will say that experience... He's talking about I did a guest spot on, on Community. And, you know, I couldn't stay on script. And they really stay on script on that show. I just would make up, you know, long... I just didn't trust myself. And so I've just kind of come up with these long vamps and things like that. And they, they would come out and they would so nicely say, Hey, that was great. Could we do one kind of more as scripted? And finally, it got to the point where my line in one scene was, Yeah. Right? <laughs> And I just couldn't do it. I, it was like they said, oh, so someone's going to say, why didn't we know about this? <laughs> My line was, yeah. I couldn't do convincingly. So I kept saying, yeah, one time. And then I just let myself get cut off, right? <laughs> so they'd come out and they'd say, hey, that was great. Can you not say one time? Said, okay. Yeah. Once and the, like, <laughs> I couldn't help it. I just, for some reason, it was funny to me that he had something else to say. <laughs> anyway, I think what, I don't know if it was in the show, but what I think I ended up doing was saying, yeah, and then mouthing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why there's no more Kugler. Well, it was nice to sort of, like, I mean, those shows are kind of kindred spirits in a, yeah. in a weird sort of way. Well, that's a compliment to us. I mean, you know, Dan was... Uh, did tell me, and I was very, I mean, this is very touching to me in a way, but he said what he got from Arrested Development was the idea of do a show for yourself. Like, don't just copy what's out there. Like, actually do what you think is funny. And that's, that's why that show is so, you know, quirky. It's nothing like Arrested, but it's, it's got its own voice, yeah. you know, which is great. What is your question? Uh, I'm Brad. Um, I wanted to first thank you because uh, I'm an aspiring screenwriter myself, oh, and I love nice. all the stuff that you had to say about sticking with it. Really, really inspiring. Oh, good. Um, it, I wanted to know if there any. You're not crazy for thinking it's hard and uncomfortable. It's, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. But uh, were there any? I love every guest star that you had on the show. It has one of the greatest roles of guest stars ever. Yeah, um, was there so... anyone that you ever? really, really wanted for the show that it didn't work to get out. And also, I wanted to compliment you for your uh, role on uh, Workaholics, because that is, hands down, one of the funniest characters, I think, that... Oh, thank you. 
funky butt loving has entered my friend's vernacular, and it, it's the greatest. Oh, In what context <laughs> wouldn't you like to know? I think we would. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't remember doing that scene, but um, <laughs> that was really fun. That was really fun. That is one where I just talked, you know, and they, I really did think that the job for me was going to be like the banker that said, uh, I'm sorry, guys, we can't give you that loan. Like, that would have been a good thing for me. It's like, no, they were the straight men, and I was the guy in the bicycle shorts. It was a big swing. Um, I always wanted to get Carl Rove on the show. I, did, I really did. I, that was a biggie. James Lipton was a biggie uh, on my wish list, and I remember David Cross saying to me, when he found out we got him, he said, this is so great. He said, this is my act. I have this whole thing in my act about, you know, how, he, how stupid he was when he thanked his wife, you know, for the Ace Award. This is fantastic. My fans are going to go crazy. So one day I walk um, out of my office to go down the stage, and, and <laughs> David's just pacing around my office. And it was the day that Lipton was going to be there. And he said, uh, you don't think he's going to be mad at me, do you? <laughs> this is the surprise of David. He's like, he's a nice Jewish guy. Like, he seems so, you know, like, so ballsy. He is so ballsy. But he's also kind of a caring, nice guy. And um, I said, I don't know if he's upset about it. And he said, yeah. What do you think I should do if he brings it up? And I said, um, I think you could apologize without selling out. I think you could say, you know, that was 10 years ago. And if that hurts your feelings, I'm sorry. You know, I've now, I'm a little older now. And, and uh, I didn't mean to make fun of your career. And, you know, but I, I do. I make fun of a lot of stuff to be funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's not going to be mad at me. I said, no, he's not going to be mad at you. Then I went down to meet James Lipton. And he said, oh, I'm so happy to be here. You know, I'm a primo ballet dancer. He's always, he's full of stuff like that. <laughs> you can't believe it. He even said to me, he said, you know, I, uh, I, I really enjoy Will Ferrell's take on me as the name dropper and so forth. I was with Susan Sontag at uh, Dick Cavett's <laughs> house, and she made the observation. But after telling me how much he liked Will Ferrell, he said, I am going to have to have a talk with that David Cross, however. <laughs> oh, no. He said, yes, my wife had been very ill, and I thanked her from the bottom of my heart, and I did well up and cry, and he did a 15-minute hunk about it. So I said, oh, I'm sure there's nothing. And then I went back up and said, he's mad. He's mad. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what happened next, but when I finally went down to the stage, because now I was a little scared, like, I don't want to be around this. When I did finally go down to the stage to see them shooting that scene, it was almost like two guys who had gotten in a fight and then made up and now are just both being so solicitous. I don't know that's what happened, but it was like, um, well, I could just cross over to you. Or I could come to you. Well, honestly, whatever's better. No, no, no. I, I, I'm not, I don't have a preference. I'm just trying to make, it, make you comfortable. Well, I mean, let's, let's ask the director. Anyway, so that. <laughs> They're all trying a little too hard. Yeah, exactly. Look at, look at all your art here. You got the Starks, you got Heisenberg, you got Zelda, you got Half-Life, you got the Mandalorians. His, his ink, really? Damn, you got the wow. silence right there. Is that Foo Fighters? That's weird there with all those. That's all music stuff. Oh, this is all music stuff on this side. Oh, very well organized. Very well organized. Nice there's job. some guy from the 60s who's covered with tattoos, and it's like, oh, that girl, and, you know, like, <laughs> Paul Revere and the Raiders. <laughs> Just, like, yeah, the really flower in the I didn't know TV would get better. I didn't know. Unprotected. Protected sex, all the things that the <laughs> exactly 60s. Right. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. Are you that person? 
this is going to be amazing. <laughs> I don't want to build this up too much. What is your name? Uh, Jackson. Mitch I, Jackson. It's, it's a good story. Has formed the perfect question <laughs> okay, to great. end wow. today's festivities. Now, we've heard a lot of questions up to now, and they were pretty good. No, they were good. But I was saving Jackson until the end because this... It's not just about the question. It's about the setup that's built into the question. That gets and it's big also... And gets us out of here. It's also about the things not being asked. The negative <laughs> right. spaces. The holes the in the Swiss space. cheese. It's all of those things that are culminating into the fact that I, no one will ever need to ask another question. I'm going to start packing up my stuff. You should. Just because so there's no way. There's no get fucking way that <laughs> okay. this is not here going go. to be... You done with this? Is this finished? I'm not, I mean, honestly, okay. just fucking throw it against the screen away. because this is, this is how this is going to pan out. Jackson, we've all been waiting. Oh, God. First of all, who are you wearing? Um, Walmart. Okay, good. Uh, and what is your question? God. Um, I had a question about David Cross. Oh, come on. I just answered it, man. I know, I know. I just um, did a 10-minute... Sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, you said it was going to be better than this. Why did you do this to me? You're embarrassing me. I failed you. Um, I, I could tell that story again. <laughs> How much of Tobias Funke's uh, character development is uh, credited to David, and then how much of it is, like, because of you? Um, wait a minute. We all have to do the... <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's right. That's a great question. That's a perfect question great, to end today's festivities. It's a, it's a biggie. <laughs> um, well, it's all David. I mean, obviously, you know, I will say he came out. I had never met him. I talked to him on the phone. I just wanted him in the thing so badly. And I, and I called him and, and said, you know, you can play any part you want in this. And I, as I was saying, I was like, ah, he's going to choose Michael. He's going to choose Michael. It's going to be an awful show. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and he, then he went away and came and said, I think Tobias, which was perfect. And the, and the only talk about his character we had, the only thing at all, was that he said, I think he should have a mustache. <laughs> I said, yes, he should have a mustache. And then we started shooting on the first day. Well, actually, two things. The first day he came in, We'd been shooting for about four days, and everybody was doing all this really subtle, understated stuff, and like, you know, and George Michael throwing jokes away and everything. And David came in, and I was over by the, the camera. We had, didn't rehearse it or anything, we just were shooting everything. So Michael was like, All right, mom, well, we'll find out about that. Yeah, we'll see about that, mom. You know, mom, how could I ask, how could I talk you into never making that face again? Just little subtle, subtle, dry things. And then out comes David Cross. Michael! <laughs> How are you? And I look at the Russos who are directing, and they look at me. I mean, we're just like, what is this? It was like, what are we going to do? He's, pretend, he's pretending he's a grown-up. That's what it was. It was like a guy in a high school play pretending he's a grown-up, except he was 45 while he was doing it. And how are you? And then he does... It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And it did not even seem funny. I mean, maybe it's just because it was in such a shroud of fear of like, what do we do? It's the only guy we just said, you're in. We didn't audition or anything. <laughs> of course, it's fucking hilarious, you know? Like, and, and he had the sense to kind of know, like, yeah, I'm the in-law. I don't have to play at the level everybody else does. Um, and then on the second day we were shooting, we were out on the boat, 
And we suddenly heard this frantic, uh, this uh, network executive came out in a boat to us, like waving her arms. And she came and she said, Gail Berman doesn't like mustaches. <laughs> they got a boat to tell you that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I said, well, and he, and David's on another boat because he's protesting, right? Um, I said, this isn't going to go well. I mean... <laughs> This is pretty much the only part of the character I've discussed with him. And, you know, <laughs> it's real, it is the character at this point. It's a mustache being carried around by a man pretending to be an adult. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we had to bring him in, you know, get the toe line and pull him in. And, you know, they don't want you to wear the mustache. What? Yeah, Gail Berman, who runs Fox, has a rule, no hats, no mustaches. It's like, oh, well, I guess that's why they've done so well. <laughs> it's an important one. I get it. I think Ned Flanders has a mustache. I remember making that point. And she's like, no irony. She was like, well, that's animated. <laughs> oh, I forgot that was animated. animated. right? That's not real? It's not no, live action. No, that's not live it's action. so interesting. Shit. Good animation. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, I, got, I bought it. So, um, I, so he said, I, what? I said, yeah, they don't want you to wear the mustache. Are you kidding me? So we got to do that scene again? He said, yeah. And then he whispered in my ear, I'm going to go do it and not be funny. And I said, great. And he went back out there and he did the same scene and he just did it without being funny, which is kind of a talent when you're funny to be able to turn it off and just say, how are you? You know, just do the line really flat. And then I said, you know, we exported it from the camera and they drove it over to the head of Fox and, and I you know, put this note in and it says, as you can see, it's just funnier with a mustache for some reason. <laughs> anyway, that's the David Cross story. And so what, So we don't know anything about the future of Arrested Development? Not yet, but there will be something coming. Okay, There'll be good. something coming. Good, good, good. Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. That's good enough for us. <laughs> Thanks, um, you guys. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me in thanking Mitch Hurwitz Thank for being you. here. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank Jackson. You that was a great finishing question. Great, great, great. Chris Hardwick. Thank and you. I was so here nice too. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Oh, honestly. So great. Above and beyond. So great. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us in Pura. Promised to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pure. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.